The moment that like I opened my heart to more compassion to the world, I started receiving more compassion from the world, from people, from animals, and also like spiritually in my heart, feeling I am doing better and I am putting some good in the world. And success isn't necessarily tied to money. I think for me, the feeling of success is knowing that I have put back positive contribution into the world. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today, we are diving into the world of plant-based Vietnamese cuisine with a remarkable guest. She is Thuy Tham, and she's the driving force behind Mama Dat, a vegan Vietnamese restaurant that's making waves in the culinary world. In our conversation, we explore Twee's journey, her passion for creating delicious vegan dishes, and the incredible impact Mama Dat is having on the plant-based food scene. We'll also delve into the culinary significance of Vietnamese cuisine and how it aligns with our mission to build a vegan world. But before we jump into this episode, I want to remind you, our wonderful listeners, that your support means the world to us. If you enjoy this conversation and you want to help us spread the message of plant-based living, please take a moment to comment, like, and share this episode. And if you're tuning in on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to leave us a review. It truly makes a difference. Now, without further ado, let's dive into this wonderful conversation with the incredible Tweet Thumb. Get ready to be inspired. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Tweet. Uh, what a pleasure and a joy to sit down with you and hear a bit of your story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on here and share my story with your audience. Hi, my name is Twee, and I am the proud owner of Mama Doot, where we do vegan Vietnamese food. We're here on 1414 Southeast Morrison Street in Portland, Oregon. What inspires the food is partly my mom and my daughter is a huge inspiration for me. I grew up without any sense of pride in my food and culture and always felt ashamed. and. There was an instance when I was like younger where I actually threw away food that my mom brought for me to lunch because I was embarrassed about it. And like having a daughter, like I don't want her to ever feel ashamed of like who she is and where she comes from and what she eats. And so like when I had the opportunity to like be in the food world, it just there was no other option for me to do except for Vietnamese food and you know, becoming vegan really helped me discover like the roots of veganism within Vietnamese culture as well. And so the whole process has just been like a really big inspiration and motivation for me. So I learned how to cook really from my mom. She's a single mom of three kids and growing up I was, I'm the oldest and so I was relegated to like, you know, before mom comes home, go make rice and go wash. And so she would like have me prep all her ingredients while she's at work. And then she'd just come home and like fire everything up and cook. So at a really early age, I think like seven or eight, I was already, I was like in the kitchen washing rice and learning how to like wash the vegetables and just prep and butcher everything for my mom. I garden a lot at home and I always like try to try new recipes and growing up, I, my daughter growing up as a baby, I would always be like, Kinsley, come here, mama Duke, because Duke means to feed. And um, so when I wanted her to try something, I'd be like, here, mama Duke. 
And it became like this phrase that she just learned. Anytime that she got lazy to eat, she'd bring her bowl to me and be like, Mama, do, Mama, do. And so like a friend of mine had mentioned, wow, that's hilarious. That's like a really great name for a food business, you know? Um, and then when I decided to start this, it just was appropriate to use Mama Do. Before we get started, I always like to go back in time uh, before we talk about all the incredible and wonderful things that you've been doing with your life in recent years. Tell us how you discovered the vegan and plant-based lifestyle. Where did that all begin for you? The vegan and plant-based lifestyle, I became vegan in 2019. So just about a year before the pandemic happened and um, I was moved to you know, try a vegan diet because my sister and brother-in-law are vegan and they had always encouraged me to learn a little bit more about animal agriculture and the effects of agriculture on our planet as well. And for my sister's birthday one year, I just like dove in because she asked for her birthday. She didn't want anything else except for me to watch these documentaries. After watching them... (laughs) I believe in science. <laughs> like a true activist. Yeah. You will you know, watch these documentaries, otherwise, you know. It's hard to watch these documentaries and be really faced with the facts and realities of the, you know, cruelty, one, of animal agriculture, and two, the effects of it on our planet. I asked myself, I said, how could I'd be talking and preaching about all these things and saying that I'm, I love animals and saying that, you know, I, you know, I, I, I'm an environmentalist if I didn't take all the steps and try to do better. You know, I'm Vietnamese and there's Vietnamese culture is rooted in Buddhism. And one of the teachings of Buddhism is to start your day every day with the intention of doing better. It was during the holidays and I just made the decision. I was like, okay, You know, my resolution for this year in 2019 is to do everything I can to become vegan. And I said, I'm going to just take it one day at a time and see what I can do and do better each day. And ever since I've been vegan ever since then. And, you know, for me, it was like becoming vegan in order to have a better, healthy lifestyle you know, doing it for myself, it's easy to like, for me to be like, oh, you know what, I'm gonna just let it go. But when I made the intention to do it, not just for me, but for animals and for those who can't speak up for themselves and like Mother Earth, (laughs) it gave me a deeper sense of responsibility to try harder. Netflix is out with a new series called Street Food USA. In the episode about Portland, you get to know a lot more about this woman right there, Twee fam of Mama Doot. Two years ago, just as the hairstylist was about to make a vegan Vietnamese dish at home, her daughter Kinsley said, Mom, let's do this on Instagram Live. And not long after that, her new business was born. Mama Doot, by the way, means Mama feeds you in Vietnamese. And you can even see the fond connection between mother and daughter in this business. In tonight's Northwest Grown, they share with me how the sudden success has been an emotional roller coaster for both of them. Congratulations, lady. This is awesome. The phone has been ringing like crazy earlier. This is insane. It's overwhelming for you too, though, isn't it? This Netflix and everything that's going on with Mama Duke. Yeah, (laughs) I don't want to get emotional, but yeah, it's overwhelming. It's a lot. I'm so honored and humbled 
that people feel so touched by my story because growing up I didn't feel like my story was ever worth telling and so it's um it's really overwhelming and I'm really grateful to hear from people who find the stories the story resonates with them you are a mum as well yes. and and what what part did that play in your mind as well obviously bring having a child in this world and seeing all this information you know how did that affect your i guess your tenacity to make this change you know for me it was just like i have this child now and i need to do my best to be better each day and leave this place in the best condition that i can from not just my child but like you know all the generations coming after us and I don't think that reality really hit me until I had Kinsley and I was faced with this little person that I knew was going to live on after me. And so I felt that like, how could I be a good mama to Kinsley and tell her, hey, love our dog, love our cat, but you can eat this pig. You know, like there's a little, for me, it made me feel a little hypocritical. And I felt that like, if I'm going to be preaching these things to my child that I should at least make the biggest efforts that I can to also listen to what I'm preaching and and follow those intentions as well with my actions. You know, words are wonderful and they're great ways to communicate and affirm each other, but without action, the words we speak are empty. You, you mentioned the word action there, and obviously in Sanskrit, um, action is karma, and karma plays a fundamental role in Buddhism. I'm also Buddhist, but for, for the first part of most of my Buddhist life, I still ate animals. I thought it was strange that I was part of a Buddhist community that continued to eat animals. I didn't understand it. I thought this, this is a very strange thing. I mean, I learned more about veganism, but I also learned more about animals, their sentience, their self-awareness, their, their personalities. I had a cat that I loved, you know, I had pet mice and birds, which I adored. And I treated these animals with such love and care, but then there were animals on my plate, which I never even thought twice about. And it was when I encountered veganism that made me awaken to this idea. Um, and I felt like a hypocrite. I thought, how am I out there teaching about Buddhism and talking about compassion and ahimsa, nonviolence, but yet I'm sitting down and having this meal three times a day and partaking in a violent system that is so mindless, isn't it? We, we go to the grocery store, we go to friends' homes, our, our, our parents and our families cook and eat animals in an enormous mindless way. Yes, it is culture, it is family, it's flavor, but it's also other elements to it as well, which we don't think about, which is a prickly word, which is a victim. You know, we don't think about the victim when we eat an animal because it's often done for us. And that's one of the hardest things to accept and, and acknowledge. Uh, and it is a painful reality. And it is wonderful when one has that realization. I feel like the heart chakra, if we get all spiritual, opens, doesn't it? And we start to see the world in a different way. We start to see animals in a different way. And for me, it's a, it's a blossoming of and a widening of our compassion. Would yeah, you agree? Absolutely. I think like what you said about, you know, opening your heart chakra to compassion, it's something that I have spoken about since I've become vegan so much. It's like I became vegan in 2019. And one of my biggest fears in becoming vegan was that I was going to lose the ability to enjoy the cultural foods that I grew up with. My fear was valid, but I was so wrong. The moment I became vegan, it really 
opened up this new opportunity for me to rediscover my own roots as a Vietnamese person. It really opened the door for me to relearn where the roots of vegan cuisine and where the roots of Vietnamese cuisine really started. And it, it was incredible. It was like the moment that like I opened my heart to more compassion to the world, I re started receiving more compassion from the world as well. And from people, from animals, just, and also like spiritually in my heart, feeling I am doing better and I am putting some sort of good in the world. And for me, success isn't necessarily tied to money. I think for me, the feeling of success is knowing that I have put back positive contribution into the world. Becoming vegan has allowed me to do that by inspiring me to start Mama Dude, by inspiring me to speak up about the cultural roots of so much of vegan cuisine. And it's given me opportunity to volunteer and work on farm sanctuaries and just things that allow me to put more compassion into the world. There, there is a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world. We all realize that. I think it's really oftentimes easy to lose sight of all the good things that are happening in the world and all the, all the positive change that we as individuals are trying to make every day in order to, you know, put positive change. I think I'm a diehard optimist when it comes to humanity. That's wonderful. Tui. I mean, we need more people like you in the world because <laughs> there is a lot of darkness and there's a lot of things that are constantly biting at us on a on a daily basis. So putting that into the world, it is a practice. It is it is a mind there is a mindfulness to it. Yeah, one can become drawn into this negative world that we live in where there are a lot of bad things happening. We often remind people there have always been bad things. The world has always been a dark place. Humanity has a very dark history. We are by our nature of you know by by part of our nature at least anyway a violent and destructive species but we also have the potential for great light and great love and great compassion and joy and creation rather than destruction but speaking of creation uh, let's talk about what you've described as your love language which is food you know you are in my eyes an artist when it comes to food you're an incredible creator I want to learn a bit more about the food culture of your childhood and your family, because I'd love to learn about the shift in the transition um, of Vietnamese origins and family and, and culture. And that uh, Vietnamese food is a rich food culture. There's so much there. Tell us about what you grew up around, what kind of food culture you grew up around, what kind of food you grew up around. Oh, man. How... So it's so wild to me. I'm very blessed to have been able to grow up with a family who worked really hard to hold on to our cultural cuisine. I grew up with a single mom. I'm the oldest of three kids. My mom and my family escaped Vietnam after the war in a fishing boat <laughs> and spent time in an Indonesian refugee camp and eventually landed in the U.S. in 1982. I think about my mom back then a lot lately because, you know, I'm a mom myself and, you know, I'm walking a similar journey as my mom when she was, you know, raising us. And, you know, she came here not knowing a lick of English. Um, my grandmother had passed away due to an unfortunate accident 
when we had escaped to Vietnam. So my mom came here and watched and experienced so much trauma. You know, my dad was incredibly abusive. I think the only peace my mom found in her daily life for a long time was the joy of feeding her kids. She would work, you know, three, four jobs a week to make ends meet and then come home every night and make us a Vietnamese meal. We didn't always appreciate it, you know. We sometimes complain about it and want American food. But now, like, as an adult, I realize how much my mom fought in order to bring Vietnam to us on a table, on a plate, every night. And it was her way of holding on to not just her homeland, but it was also holding on to the memory of her mom, whom she lost, and her dad, whom she lost during the war, and her grandparents, whom she lost during the war. What I realize now is that so many of our aunties and moms and dads and uncles at the time, they weren't just cooking Vietnamese food for us kids to nourish us. They were cooking it so that we would never forget. Yeah. Preserving yeah. the culture for you. Mm -hmm. mm. That we would never forget what a bowl of Bumba Wei would taste like. You know, they cooked it for us so that we can eat the same food and remember. Like, I don't remember my grandmother. She passed away when I was one. I don't remember her. But I remember her love. I remember her food. And that is the one and only thing that continues to connect me to my grandmother, whom I, you know, I don't have anymore. So like, <clears throat> that was my mom. And that's how, that's how we ate as kids, you know, is it was really rare that we would get McDonald's <laughs> and when we did get American food, it was always like kind of this weird blend of American food with like Asian stuff. Like my mom, I remember like she would sometimes, she'd be, sometimes she'd be really tired and she'd come home with a bucket of KFC fried chicken, right? But we never eat fried chicken with like Americans do. It's like we make fried chicken and then she'll make like a salad, like a goi, like a Vietnamese salad. And then she'll like make like a Vietnamese style dipping sauce to dip the chicken in and we'd eat it with jasmine rice, <laughs> you know, or like we'd eat it with like Vietnamese pickles and mm. stuff like Ooh. that, you know. Wow. <laughs> Sounds delish. I used to love a, love a chicken, but you know, thank you for sharing that beautiful story and you know for sharing a slice of of those wonderful memories. And you know, that's one of the greatest things about us as human beings is that we can communicate with each other through these love languages, through things like food, you know, and compassion and friendship and community. For me, this is one of the ways in which we can build community, which is sitting down at a table with people and connecting and talking and sharing and. It's so important to preserve food cultures because, you know, I don't want to live in a world where we are, are at, at the mercy of commercial food systems, which suck the life and the creativity and the love and the joy out of food and cooking. And unfortunately, you know, in the UK, as an example, we 
are in a place where there is no food culture. Their food culture is borrowed from all over the world, but the food culture has been lost because of various reasons, because of war, because of invasions, because of the, the clashing of cultures over thousands of years. You know, the United Kingdom has lost its identity. And, and there's, sure, there's great food here. You can go to London and go to the most amazing Vietnamese restaurants that serve vegan food. You can go and have Chinese food and Italian food. But I often ask, what is English food? You know, yeah. what is it? It's very hard to know what it is. You know, it's sort of like boiled cabbage and <laughs> like the most tasteless, it's often the most tasteless food. And so English people have taken on the culture, food cultures of others. You know, that that's, was my next question, actually, was the clash between, you know, Asian American food and, and the American food growing up. I spoke to uh, Joanne Molinero, the, the um, Korean vegan, and she talked to me about how she would go to school with her Korean food and she would be embarrassed of it and she would hide it and she would she would be bullied for it. You know, did you also experience similar? Did you also have a, a real battle with trying to maintain your identity, but at the same time battling with a with a frankly racist sort of, you know, culture that that didn't want to accept anything that was different? Oh, absolutely. This is so common. Like, you know, realizing, you know, I didn't think that this was a common feeling when it was happening to me as a kid, but growing up now, I feel like this is an experience that many of us can resonate with. And absolutely, I remember, you know, like my lunches, my Vietnamese lunches didn't even make it to school. My mom would make them and I would, sometimes I would pretend to forget it. Sometimes I would take it and I would just throw it all in the trash can and just leave it in my backpack. And it got to the point where like my mom just stopped making it because, you know, it was a waste of time. And, you know, she can only fight so many battles, right? <laughs> and she was like, no, fine. You go to school, you eat your American lunch. Just eat the school lunches if that's what you want. I didn't even give it a chance because I was so fearful. I came here when I was two. So my grasp of English didn't really start and you know started pretty young you know and so as you can see my I don't have an accent but yet I was still forced to take ESL classes as a kid so like imagine being like a, in the first and second grade you speak perfect English on top of speaking perfect Vietnamese and then having like an ESL teacher come to your classroom in the middle what's, of the what's day. an ESL just for those that don't know I don't oh, know <laughs> English as a second language right so, well, so even though English was probably your first language, yeah, it was my. It was you know I learned English. At I learned Vietnamese first, but I I picked right. up English at the same time, and so yeah. you know my English and Vietnamese was both very fluent. But because I was seen as a Vietnamese refugee, you know somebody who had no who knows a second language, who knows Vietnamese as well, the school system just assumed that I needed to take English as a second language classes. And so I would get pulled out of class in the middle of the day. And it was like, oh, everybody's staring and watching Tui get pulled out to ESL class with all the kids who can't speak English. So that experience of feeling like I'm being stuck out like a sore thumb and being really caused me to be fearful of sharing any more of my culture and so I hid it. Like even when my mom would pick me up at school or drop me off and she'd speak to me in Vietnamese, I would always respond in English. I always lived with this fear. I didn't want to be yelled at for speaking non-English words at school or in public. I didn't want to get yelled at for my stinky food because, you know, like my mom at work, she would talk about how like her work would forbid people from bringing certain foods in because it was stinky. <laughs> And that happened at school too. They, 
send letters home and ask like, you know, parents to not pack food that was so aromatic, you know, disruptive to the class. And you don't realize back then, but it was racist. Yeah, 100%. But it's so, it's so, this is the thing with racism in the culture that we live in today. You know, it's still the same today. It's so in your face and so blatant that people accept it and they don't challenge it because they don't really understand the damage it's doing, especially like young kids, you know. Being a, a Caucasian person, I haven't. I, I don't say I would, you know, never experience racism. I definitely experienced prejudice and discrimination as a queer person, so I can definitely sympathise. But it's so overt in our culture, and that's one of the biggest and most challenging things as people that racism and prejudice often is so overt. But also, that's the hardest bit. But there's also there's this undertone as well that flows in our society, not just towards Asian American people, African American people, or queer or trans people. It's a sort of culture that it's even baked into language as well, and the way people talk. And and obviously, you know, at what point though through your life did you come into your own? And 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 because you clearly, you know, sh- obviously there's trauma there, but you've shifted that and 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 kind of taken ownership of your culture and your food culture, and you've said, "This is me. <laughs> this is me. This is yeah. me." Uh, you know, what what was that a slow thing, or how how did that change? It wasn't anything that was overnight. It was. And I think like most revelations in life and lessons in life, it's a journey, right? To get you to that point. I struggled on top of, you know, all the intersectionalities, but I struggled with, you know, depression and um, mental health a lot coming into my teenage years and in my 20s. Because of that, I had been hospitalized on multiple occasions, sometimes not voluntarily. Going through that journey of the hospitalizations and the therapy and being forced to like face my demons and the real issues inside of me really helped me come to terms with my identity as a Vietnamese person and my identity as an American. That's when I really started cooking. I remember like my second hospitalization I had spent like, I think nearly th- four weeks in the hospital. When you're in there, they you're really on a regimen of medication and therapy. And I was in there for three weeks. My mom was living out of state at the time. And I came out and to my apartment and I was just feeling like I missed my family. And I remember like making a bowl, a pot of porridge, of, of rice porridge, of congee. And it was just really simple. It was just all I had because, like, you know, I'd been in the hospital for so long. I, all I had was like some ginger in my freezer, some freaking rice, you know, and, and like some dried mushrooms that I threw in. I remember sitting and just crying, eating that bowl of porridge. I realized that like it's the food that my mom cooked for us that I miss. And it's like what is filling me and helping me con- connect with being Vietnamese. All the things I was doing, trying to be so American at the time, trying to fit in, it just, it it was driving me crazy because it wasn't who I am. You weren't, al- you weren't able to be your authentic self. Yes. You weren't, you weren't being allowed to be your authentic self. For me, this is the greatest source of suffering of most human beings is that we emerge into this world 
many of us are pressed in many ways or suppressed. And it's a bit like being stuck inside a pressure cooker. You know, the lid goes on and you are full of life and ideas and, you know, young person. And it breaks my heart hearing your story. You know, it, it, it really does. And, it, and you, you're right. It is a story that I have heard before. And, it, and, it is, and, it's, and it's sad that so many children aren't allowed to be their true selves, whether you are an Asian American young person or a trans person or a queer person or whoever you are and your identity. You don't, aren't allowed to express your identity, but you, you got through it. You got over that mountain. <laughs> Yeah. you're able you're able to to really take ownership of your identity and create something beautiful you know and that's how I saw you I saw you on that screen and I just knew I, I knew we had to speak I knew I had to hear hear you and see you hi y'all this is Twee fam with Mama Dude and I am here to show you my recipe for ganjua I learned this recipe from my mama and every time I make it it transcends me back to my childhood and all its comforts one of the best things about this soup is this little veggie here. It is the taro stem. It is spongy and celery-like and just absorbs all the beautiful broth so that when you bite into it, you just get a mouthful of veggie and broth all in one bite. It's absolutely amazing. Up next, we have our pineapple, which acts as our natural sweetener. And of course, we got to have our onions. Make sure to slice them up nice and thin. You really do to where you really radiate such a beautiful energy and such a, a beautiful heart, you know, and that really shines through in your work and, and everything that you're doing. So, you know, thank you for Thank you for sharing that and, and sharing a piece of you, a piece of you, because I know these things are not easy to talk about. And, and I appreciate your, your vulnerability and your, and your sensitivity in this, because it, it, it is a tough one. But I want to sort of talk a bit about the space and the, and, the, and the city that you found yourself, or you find yourself in Portland, Oregon, and the food culture, because just to talk a bit about like connections with parents, for me, I've growing up had very little relationship with my father. And he was always a, like alien, an alien to me. I had no relationship with him at all. And it's been so interesting to see our relationship blossom since he went vegan. My dad's 65. He went vegan. He did Veganuary. And he's obsessed with vegan food and vegan culture. And it really speaks to what you said about how food can bring people together and a love for food and a love for a culture. Because veganism is a culture. It's a very young culture because it's, you know, as an idea as a global idea, it's very young. It's not been around long. Of course, there are cultures who've abstained from eating animals for thousands of years. But the idea of a global culture of people of all different colors and ethnicities coming together around a shared idea of compassion for animals and, and, and others is quite revolutionary, really. Not easy, but revolutionary. And, uh, and it's been a wonderful experience to, to build that relationship with my dad. And before, we didn't have anything to talk about. We had no way to connect. And now that he's vegan and he loves cooking and he loves mushrooms and he loves all these different things, there's this wonderful relationship that's blossomed from it. And I, and I hope that for others, when they can build a relationship with their family, is to, is to do it through food. Uh, because as you said, you know, it's very easy as a young person to turn our backs on our culture and our food culture because we want to fit in to the dominant, dominant culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, but it is a journey. And I think that you know, your story is, is one of, of hope. So. Thank you again for sharing it. But Portland, Oregon is apparently the most vegan city in the, in the US. Is that true? Do I need to come visit? <laughs> you know, I, 
I don't know where or how that marker or what the markers are to become the most vegan friendly city in the world or in the country, but I do think because I've never I've never been to all the cities in the country because so I can't speak for the rest of the country, but it's interesting because Portland we are kind of like the two extremes, right? Portland is for one a very heavily meat centric. There's a lot of meat heavy consumption happening in Portland. You can actually butcher your own livestock in your backyard here in Portland. It's holy legal. crap. <laughs> yeah, it's actually legal to butcher. That's your wild. Own. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a really well. So we have that culture and that. But then there's this other side of Portland where there's so many vegan restaurants, dedicated vegan restaurants. So many Omni restaurants offer vegan options as well. And we get a lot of vegan tourism here too because of how accessible vegan food is. But I also think vegan food is accessible to many cities along the East or along the West Coast also because of our proximity to agriculture, to farms and produce. We have in Portland so many local farms and you know, mom and pop farms who go out and do farmers markets and offer fresh produce at reasonable rates. And you can get, you know, CSA boxes from, you know, which CSA boxes are basically like, you'll get like a weekly allotment of like vegetables and whatever is grown from a farm. You know, you can pick like from whatever farm you want and they'll do these special boxes of produce every week that they'll deliver to you, you know? So there's a lot of different programs here within the city that I think gives people the opportunity to try vegan food and then realize, hey, vegan food is good. I love it. You know? <laughs> it's not all grass. <laughs> yeah. I think honestly, like I, a big percentage of customers, my my customers at Mama Do are non-vegans. They are flexitarians, you know, or omnis who just want to try vegan food that we're going to dive into why that is because obviously i've got a few ideas and a few clues uh based on some of the yumminess i have seen on screen now this is the rice patty herb aka ngaom which is the heart and soul of this soup we'll also add tomatoes to the base of the broth to give it a nice tang now that we got our veggies all prepped, all we gotta do is just saute everything in our pot. Make sure to add your seasonings, tamarind powder, a little bit of MSG, a little bit of mushroom seasoning, and work that all together. Add our mushrooms. Mmm. And of course, some Coco Rico soda, a little bit of water, some palm sugar, and our little bit of salt with vegan fish sauce. Mm. Lastly, we're gonna throw in our macaw, which is our taro stems, bean sprouts, and our rice patty herb. We're gonna let it all simmer down, add some peppers for a little heat, and serve. Look at that. Mm. Can't wait to eat this. So your restaurant, Mama Doot, Mama Doot, Mama Dut. Mama Doot. Doot means to feed in right. Vietnamese. And it's it's what I used to say to Kinsley all the time when she was younger, if I wanted to feed her. Or she would say to me, if she wanted me to feed her, she'll be like, too lazy to feed herself. And she'll be like, Mama Doot. You know, <laughs> so hence the name Mama Do. Yes. So 
when did it open and uh, tell us a little bit about the journey, what it's been like, some of the highs, some of the lows, what are the challenges? I, you know, I started during the pandemic. During the pandemic, I had all these time, all this time to test out these recipes. And so I was testing out and I had just become vegan. I'd only be, been vegan for like a year. And so I was so excited to try all these recipes. And I happened to do a live stream on Instagram with Kinsley while I was testing out a pork belly, a vegan pork belly recipe. And people just like lost their mind over it and was asking me like how they can try it, if I was going to be selling it. People were like, oh, did you, what was your, how did you come up with this plan? And there was no plan. There was no plan. It was, the plan was survival. <laughs> the plan was, how am I going to make money while we're being shut down? Oh, shoot. People want to buy my pork belly. Maybe this could be like my little way to like make a little extra money until we go back to work. There was no plan. It was purely survival. So I put feelers out there. I was like, hey, if you want to order pork belly slabs, DM me. Holy crap. I've never had so many people slide into my DMs. <laughs> and, bing, 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 bing. Yeah, all day, right? Yeah. And I quickly like realized I can't do this from home. I need like a real legitimate kitchen, a real, you know, my sister did all the design work for my logo and my font and stuff like that. It was like, Kathy, I don't think I can do this with my existing, I think I have to start a new account. And she was like, what do you want the name to be? And I was like, oh, Mama Dude. Within like 48 hours of like this live stream, I had a new Instagram account for the pork belly. I had registered the name with the state as a business. And then I was starting to do research. It all where, just happened. Oh, it all just happened. And then that was like beginning of April. And then by April 24th, it was April 24th, 2020, my 40th birthday, I moved into my first commissary kitchen. And I remember sitting there at night, like FaceTiming with my family and my sister and stuff like that. And they're like, it's your birthday and you're just going to be in the kitchen putting equipment together. And I was like, you know what? It's my 40th birthday and I'm investing in myself right now. And I'm doing this like exactly how I would want to do it. I have nobody in my ear telling me I'm doing this wrong or anything. I'm just going to this is my gift to myself. For my Your sister must be so proud. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Because <laughs> uh, you know? obviously she managed to get you to go vegan and then you created a, a, an incredible vegan food dish that, you know, is kind of culturally significant. If we close our eyes, just describe the, obviously we don't have the, uh, the dish here to hear all the sounds, but like, let's do a whole a ASMR vibe here like what does it sound like because obviously it's lots of layers to it and like let's talk us through yeah so the the pork belly is inspired by vietnamese roasted pork it's called hawaii vietnamese roasted pork is a celebratory food and the reason why i was so intent on trying to make this was because i was tired of going to family celebrations and seeing them haul in the entire roasted pig and everybody eating it with like the sticky rice. And I'm just sitting there eating just rice. <laughs> I'm like, I want to celebrate with y'all too. So my fear of missing out <laughs> drove me to create this pork belly. And so when you bite into it, you're first going to get like, like a little crispiness because of the skin, the layer of skin 
quote unquote skin that we created using bean curd sheets. And then you're going to get like that fattiness layer. If you've never had like pork belly coming from a pig, you won't really know the texture, but it's a very similar to tex- texture to what mochi, like that chewiness of like that fat chewiness. You get like little bits and pieces of what would be like the quote unquote meat layer. And that meat layer is a little bit chewy. It has, it's like kind of toothy, like a steak would be, or like a piece of pork chop would be. Like a big chunky piece of bacon with a. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So think of like thick sliced bacon with a little bit more crispiness to the skin. I always say it's like a melodic dance of like textures. You have like the crispiness of the skin, the outer layer with the bean curd and like the soft chewiness of, you know, the fatty layers and then like that toothy texture, meatiness feel. So it's a really fun food in your mouth to eat. Um, That's why it pairs so well in like banh mi. It stars really well in with like noodles and veggies because of all the different textures into Mm. it. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I have an old video from the original live stream where it's like the first time I'm trying it and I take a bite out of it. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm so glad I got that video because now I look back on it. I'm like, wow, what a great moment. Like, Yeah, well, it's, it's innovation, isn't it? Like this is the exciting thing about the food world is, you know, ideas and innovation and creativity is at the heart of it. And that's why I believe it's and there's an artistry to it. And people went wild for it. And, you know, was it is it quite a difficult dish to make? Is it quite labor intensive? It is a bit labor intensive. I don't want to say it's difficult. I don't think much of cooking is difficult. I think it's just things that we haven't learned yet to make it Mm. easy. I don't think it's difficult. I think anybody out there can do it. I've trained my employees to make it and they love making it. It's honestly, to me, it's really therapeutic. You know, this is a pork belly recipe that I came up with, but I was inspired and I learned how about it and how to make it and the technique through watching Buddhist monks on Mm. YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. You know, there's no really Vietnamese like cookbooks, like Vietnamese vegan cookbooks out there that is in English that really dives into like the deep cultural roots of some of these Buddhist cuisines. And so when- Well, you know what my next question is going to (laughs) be. I think I do. You know, when I was trying to learn like vegan Vietnamese dishes, I would watch YouTube videos of Vietnamese Buddhist monks in Vietnam because there's a few of them who have like these cooking channels and I would watch them. And the thing is, is like, unless you can understand Vietnamese well, you wouldn't be able to really watch and learn these recipes because it's all in Vietnamese and it's like there's different regional dialects too, depending on, you know, where the people are coming from. But I sat and I poured myself into watching these videos and I was like, okay, I'm going to try to make this. I want to come up with my own version, you know? So when I make it, every time I make this pork belly, it just transports me back to Vietnam, my culture. Like it makes me feel more Vietnamese. It's like, it's healing. It's like transporting me back to the kitchen with my ancestors. As a Vietnamese person who isn't connected to Vietnam physically, this is the only way for me to connect myself physically to Vietnam. 
So in Vietnam today, is there much veganism going on? Is there is what is the culture of veganism like in Vietnam at the moment? Is there a roots I think there's, springing yes. up? I I think you know Vietnam before it was Catholic was Buddhist. We are a Buddhist people. I was raised Catholic. I am Catholic, and but even though I was raised Catholic, we were also raised with a lot of Buddhist traditions and values. And I think that because of that, Vietnam, Vietnam's cuisine will always, will always have a place for veganism. Vietnamese, it is rooted in veganism. If you look at like my mom, I'm working on a project right now and I've been having a lot of dialogue with my mom about Vietnamese food. And one of the most traditional Vietnamese meals, especially like if you look to like the working class in Vietnam has always been the trifecta. I call it the trifecta meal because <laughs> <laughs> it comes with a soup, some sort of vegetable dish, fully vegetable dish and salty, savory animal protein type dish, right? And we call it like gan mang, which is salty and then rau, rau, which is vegetables. Gan mang yeah. rau? Gan, gan mang, mang rau. <laughs> the salty dish is typically some sort of animal protein, and it is always a very small amount, and it's made very, very salty, usually through like a caramelization process with fish sauce and sugar that we call ka. The reason for that is because back then the working class people usually were able to grow rice, grow vegetables. Animal protein was very limited and they didn't have a lot of money. It was only for the riches of the rich, right? Vietnamese people would basically came up, created this cooking method of like animal protein to make it very salty and flavorful and it's really like hits your palate really strongly so that when you eat it, you only eat a little amount and you can eat it with a lot of rice and vegetables. And what it does is it just enhances and adds extra flavor to your rice and your vegetables. It's not intended to be the main course of the meal. What is the main course of your meal? Your rice and your veggies. And that's what my mom taught me. She's like, you know, in Vietnam, Vietnam like a traditional meal, people don't eat a lot of meat. It's just a little bit of meat that is made very salty, very savory, very punch-in-your-face flavor to enhance all the other stuff, the veggies. So Vietnamese cuisine has always and will always be very vegetable-forward. Even if it's not fully vegan, you will see even like meat-centric dishes come with lots of vegetables and herbs. And, and I think that speaks to like, you know, the history of Vietnamese people being Buddhist, but also our history as farmers, our, our history of, you know, respecting the land and living off of it and just using what you can, you know, nothing goes to waste. Like my mom told me, oh, you know, the reason why we make gun is you make, you take the leftover bone that from the animal, you know, that you protein and you, the uncooked, you know, stuff that you can't chew and eat and you put it in the soup and that's what you make soup with. And then you just throw all the veggies that you, you know, grew in your garden into there. Right. No waste and anything. You don't waste anything. Mm. Yeah. Even the history of pho came about from Vietnamese people not wanting to waste bones. And the French colonized Vietnam and brought over a lot of uh, culinary traditions. And they consume a lot of beef. 
what was happening and was French, the people over there cooking all this beef, they would throw away like all the bones and all the, what they deemed as unedible, right? Like the neck bone, the the tail bone, all this stuff that they felt was, you know, not edible. So Vietnamese people would then take all this stuff that these folks are not using (laughs) and they would boil it down and create a broth with it, threw in our spices. And that is how pho broth was birthed. It's a dish that is rooted in resiliency. It was a dish that people created because they didn't have anything else. And now it's become like this iconic dish that so many people know all over the world. It's had such humble beginnings. And so much of like Vietnamese cuisine is is rooted in that, and rooted in, okay, well, we're going to make this because this is all we have. Such an interesting history. I mean, that's the thing. There's all these wonderful stories hidden behind the scenes of all these different dishes. Um, thank you for sharing. And those obviously out there who who want to adventure onto this type of journey and, and start their own restaurant, it, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. I've got a few friends who work in the restaurant world and they're like, this is tough, but I love it. What are your words of wisdom for those out there who might be listening and really want to open a restaurant and are like burning to make food and get out there? They don't know where to begin. Like, well, what's your, how do you, how do you begin? How do you begin is you just start. You cook. You start, start to cook. You know, I started Mama Dude because I literally Googled it. I don't have restaurant background. And so I was like, I can't do this in my kitchen. So you know what I did? I asked Google. I said, Google, how do you start? a food business in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Tweet. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you. (laughs) I'm excited to try your epic food. It's amazing. (laughs) All the Instagram amazing food. So yes. So yeah, let's let's do this. Yeah, welcome. Come on in. So, okay. When I first found out about it, it was a pop-up at first. And it was during the pandemic. Mm And all your Instagramable food was just like blown up on my feed. And in the last year, it's like you've blown up and now you have a, a you can have an actual restaurant. Like, tell me a bit about that story. Why you started even pop up now, then why restaurant and why vegan? Oh my gosh, it's, uh, that's a big question. That's <laughs> yes. a long answer. So I originally started Mama Dude to sell vegan pork ballet. Yeah. Um, and I was doing that just to like, make ends meet. I just happened to like go on IG live on my Instagram, on my personal, like my hair page and Instagram, my daughter and I making pork belly and people loved it. And it gave me the eye. People were asking like, how do I buy this? And so it gave me the idea to like start slanging pork belly. And it was just going to be like this part-time thing. But I had so many orders my first week, like I couldn't handle it in my home kitchen. And so I Googled, I talked to my sister. I was like, I think I need to like find a kitchen. I need to do this legit. And she like helped me create, you know, the branding. And we started an Instagram account and just started like, I had already had content of myself cooking. And so I just started throwing it on there and started tagging away. I Googled how to like start a food business. And it like, the first thing was find a commissary kitchen. So then I Googled commissary kitchen. (laughs) Which isn't it crazy though? Like once you have an idea and you just, you just use what you have and just go for it. Because sometimes if you start planning beforehand, you psych yourself and you're like, this is just too much. I don't want to do it. It was literally just like I just jumped into it. Yeah. I was like this is how I want to do it how do I execute and then yeah. we created a website I launched pre-orders yeah. 
for my first pop-up and I launched it on Thursday with the expectation that like by Saturday, hopefully people would buy. The pop-up sold out on pre-orders in like six hours. I was like, okay. So I went and tried to source some more ingredients and I dropped another like hundred portions. Yeah. And it sold out again. Yeah, and so like my first pop-up I did, we did 300 portions of food. Your very first sale my ever. Very, my very first pop-up. My, my grand opening day was the fifth service that I had ever done wow. in my life. Ask questions. That's what I did. I didn't know anything, but you know how I knew, started learning? I started asking questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. <laughs> don't be afraid to admit you don't know something because yeah. none of us know anything until we start and we yeah. ask. And now that we've got AI, there's no excuse because you can literally yeah. ask anything and it will explain it in infinite detail. <laughs> yeah. And this is what happened. Like I would follow Google. It, it was like, get, a, you know, gather, get all your licenses for your city. And so like I would Google what license do I need in Portland? And then the moment I had like a person on the phone, I remember I was like, I don't know if you're the right person to talk to, but this is what I'm trying to do. Is this the right place? Like, am I, you know, on the right path? And I think my success with Mama Dude really is rooted in my ability to let go of my fear. I was really lucky because I started Mama Dude thinking that it was just going to be a side hustle and that I had this other career to fall back on, you know? And so I had this like fearlessness, like, oh, I don't, I literally had told my sister, I was like, I don't care. She wanted to spell doot, D-O-O-T, which is phonetically how it sounds. But I told her, I said, no, I want people to learn how to read Vietnamese. So we're going to spell doot exactly how it's spelled in Vietnamese so that that, you know, Vietnamese auntie that walks by and sees my sign can be like, <laughs> oh, doot. Oh, they feel seen in that moment, mm, right? Authenticity. Yeah, I wanted to give Vietnamese people that moment of like being seen. And I told her, I said, I don't care if people can't pronounce it. They'll just have to learn. And if this is the reason why my business tanks, then so be it. I don't care. <laughs> Go back to make a hairstyle. I don't care. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, that was always like my whole thing was like, well, if this tanks my business, then I'll just go back to being a hairstylist. But at least I'm like doing this for me. Like it was literally something for me. I didn't intend on this like project that was intended just for me and to heal me, then also heal like the world too. And you <laughs> are, you're doing it. <laughs> you're doing I feel it. so blessed to like mm. be able to have this opportunity. Like that's why it doesn't matter what obstacles I encounter. I mean, you can't like, I, it, Going into just the obstacles of building a second restaurant is like a whole entire like eight like Netflix series, I feel like. But through it all, I've even like crying my eyes out. I still am so grateful to be able to have the opportunity to overcome these hardships because that opportunity is hope to get me to where I want to be, to keep going. I was in such a dark place, like just five years ago, just, I was in such a dark place. I was such in, in such a dark place 10 years ago. And it all just changed, it seemed like overnight. I try to remind myself like the darkest time of the day is at dawn right before the sun rises. And like throughout my 
struggles with depression and stuff. That's something I'd always like, I would verbally say that to myself to, to get through it. And like, I tell people when things are getting really hard, that means you're growing. Mm. So keep going. That's beautiful. You know, it's so true. It's so true. We are we are made of strong stuff. We don't realize how strong we are as people. We don't. A diamond is forged under great pressure. So one has to remember that. It's not easy, but one has to remember that. Tell me about what's happening in the future. What are these exciting projects? You know, when is your book coming out? Well, my most immediate project that I'm working on right now is just trying to get my second location open. I went into it naively, didn't not understanding the full load of building a restaurant from the ground up. And I'm learning. I'm I'm learning <laughs> as I'm going. <laughs> you know, I have to remind myself that like, you know, the space started with just a pile of gravel and now it's starting to come something. So hopefully we'll be open by the end of the year in the second location with lots of new menu items. But also, you know, I want to make my food more accessible to people who are not physically in Portland. And I think this is actually the first time I've been talking about it publicly. <laughs> but I am um, I am working on a book project with um, my book agents and one of the big five publishing houses. I don't know if I could give more details than that. We're hoping for, we're aiming for a, a 2025 release date, but it's- we'll, we'll be there to talk about it once it's live. So make sure that- Send send us that press release. <laughs> it's very exciting. We're you know just in the the early stages of getting the project up, but I'm very excited to work with my editor and my literary team to mm. get this out. Very. I wish I could share more because it's I'm just so <laughs> so excited about all the recipes and the stories that. Well, we'll get you back for a second it. episode because there's plenty more to talk <laughs> yeah. about. So. But Tui, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. This is such a joy. And thank you to everybody listening. Thank you so much for all your support. (laughs) Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're vegan. If I gave you one vegan dish, one music artist and one book, what would you take with you on your desert island? Oh, okay. So one vegan dish, it would be my vegan mung <laughs> I love a spicy noodle soup. I would say that. And then one music artist. Oh my gosh. Can it be, can it be a group? It oh, can no. be a group. <laughs> Actually, this is so hard, but I think I would take, there's this new music artist that I'm really, really loving. Maybe it's because I'm a narcissist and she has the same name as me. (laughs) 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 But she has this, um, her name is Twee, Hmm. and she has this song, Girls Like Me Don't Cry. I just love that it's a Vietnamese woman who wrote this song, and I listen to it when I cook, and it just resonates with me, and it gets me like, okay, I can do it. You're right. Girls Like Me Don't Cry. We fucking keep going. We just (laughs) keep going. Girls like me don't cry Girls like me pretend we don't cry No, we don't cry, baby Girls like me don't cry Girls like me pretend we don't cry Tell me that you're
cry Girls like me pretend that we don't cry You know, so I think it would be her. The book. Well, I mean, I hope it'll be my cookbook. Because <laughs> <laughs> again, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> uh, you know, the intention behind my cookbook is that it's going to be a symbolic family tree mm-hmm. based on recipes and stories. And I, I would want to keep those stories close to heart. Yeah. Amazing. Twee, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. What a pleasure it has been to hear a bit of your story, a little slice of your story, a little slice Mm -hmm. of heaven. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you, Robbie. You have a wonderful week. This is so great. You've been listening to the Plant Based News podcast with me, Robbie Lockie. Our team also includes Phil Marriott, Daryl Savchuk, Holly Foreman, Triska Taylor, Hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, veganism, animals, and everything in between.